Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Did you know that yearly Medicaid renewals will start again soon? This means millions of people who were enrolled in Medicaid during the pandemic may no longer be eligible for coverage. If this may impact you, the good news is you have options. Anthem Blue Cross and Blue Shield can help answer your questions so you can find an affordable health plan for you and your family. We want you to feel confident you're covered. Click to learn more. Policy exclusions and limitations apply. Anthem Blue Cross and Blue Shield is the trade name of Blue Cross Blue Shield Healthcare Plan of Georgia, Inc. Welcome to a Celtic State of Mind. I'm Paul John Dykes, and today I'm delighted to be joined by none other than Johnny Owen. Now, Johnny, welcome to a Celtic State of Mind. This is your second appearance on the podcast, and you were on here about two years ago. At that time, I got the feeling that you had been doing some research on Jock Steen. I then received this book. And this week we saw a trailer for The Three Kings. When did you decide to make this film? Um, it's great to be back, actually, Paul. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, it was... Uh, my dad passed away in 2017. Um, and uh, he'd been ill for sort of quite a while. Uh, but he knew he was going to pass away. Uh, so he was very philosophical about it. My dad had worked underground 
uh, he's an electrician and he'd worked in the steelworks. It was nothing unusual about that from my generation, our fathers, to work in heavy industry. Um, and yeah, like a lot of men that worked underground, he always pointed out other miners. So whenever Steve Shankly and Busby were on TV, he'd go, they worked underground like me. Um, and this is something I spoke to him about, um, bless him, when he, was, uh, when he was ill and he laughed about it and smiled. And then he talked to me about those great men. Um, and I think uh, that when he went, I thought to myself, well, there's something in that. There's something in that generation and those men and where they worked and, and the kind of men they were, you know, the, uh, the lives they lived. Uh, you know, they, they were they were born into an era and a time that is almost difficult for us to imagine now, you know. Uh, and I thought, well, it's time maybe to document something about them. There was a terrific series uh, made about oh, 25 years ago now by Hugh McElvenny called The Football Men, which was fantastic. But I thought so much has happened in football since then in the last quarter of a century that um, I'd like to do something and, uh, you know, sort of tell the story from my perspective in the sense of, uh, you know, with everything that's happened in the meantime and the Leviathans, really, those clubs have become since then as well, you know. Uh, how football has changed and how Scottish football has changed. Um, so that's what it was. And uh, I went to the people that had made uh, Senna and Amy and Maradona and they'd liked a film that I'd done before called I Believe Nichols, and they asked me would I be interested in doing something with them. Um, and this was the idea that I kind of said to them and, and blessed them. They went, yes, let's do that um, almost straight away. Um, Leo Moynihan wanted to write the book, so I asked Leo to write the book. The book came out before the film because with everything that's happened, COVID and whatnot, there's been quite a lengthy de delay on everything, which is fine. Um, but we've decided to get it out now this autumn, whatever happens, really. I mean, we're going to try and get it in the cinemas uh, in November. That'll be in right across the UK. Uh, my feeling will be that I'd get your seat booked pretty quickly because obviously the cinemas, is, there's not a lot of chains open, but we're going to try and get it in as we can um, and get it out so people can see it on the big screen. Because I really want people to see it on the big screen as well, Paul. You know, I think the story needs to be seen and, and at the moment because we're not being allowed into stadiums it might be something really good fans to go to a cinema and watch you know the the story of uh, of what these men did in football which is an incredible story in itself absolutely now johnny i share your interest in the generation of men who worked underground M my father himself was a striking miner back in 84 to 85 now you explained on your first appearance on a Celtic state of mind, how you had an affinity also with Celtic Football Club. Could you maybe explain to our listeners um, how you have this relationship with Celtic as a club? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting, actually. My, um, it's a bit of a family story. In the mid-1970s, sort of late to the late 70s, football tops weren't what they were now. So there was, there was I'm sure my age now, you just used to buy them, you know, tops off the market away. And uh, I can remember being a little kid and I bought, um, my mother must have picked the top up for me and it was a Rangers top. And I'm walking through the living room and my old man says to me, what top's that? And he, I'd, he'd never said anything there before. And I innocently said, it's a Scottish top. And he said to me, um, well, you do know you're from a Welsh, Celtic, Catholic background. And I kind of went, all right. And he went, well, you meant to be sporting Celtic. And it was the first time I'd ever heard this. So... That was my first time I'd ever heard the word Celtic mentioned as a kid. My dad saying it, you know, you're a Celt, you know, you're from a Catholic background. That's not your team. All right. So I um, I was very aware then, sort of going into my early teens about sort of Celtic. My dad had spoken with the Lisbon Lions and, and obviously everybody knew about Steen working in Clenetley, uh, sorry, playing in Clenetley. So there was things I was very aware of. And then what happened to me was I got, um, Merthyr Tidville got an arrangement going with uh, Queen's Park fans. 
Um, so we used to go and play them and they'd play us. This is in my late teens. So that was the first time I came to Glasgow. Instantly fell in love with the city, like so many people do. Um, and the lad that I was paired up with, his name is Kevin Devine. Uh, Dizzy, they called him. I still his friend now lives in New York. He lived in Jockstein's old house, which is a remarkable thing. So I used to go and watch Queen's Park and he used to take me to Celtic as well. So this is when I'm at 18. So for the last 20, 30 years, I've been going to see Celtic every so often when I go up to, to Scotland. So I've seen the redevelopment of the stadium and all those kind of things. I've been to an old firm game. Great experiences. Uh, and my friends up there, Stephen Fox, Foxy, you know, they're still my mates now and they're Celtic fanatics. So when I told them I was making this film, they were they were really pleased about that. You know, they were like, you know, it's, it's just a quite a nice ring to the circle, really, that my dad grew up Welsh, you know, and he loved he loved that Celtic team. And he loved Steen. And I was I had this relationship with these lads who have been friends all my life. And I'd, I'd stayed in Jock Steen's old house, which is remarkable, in Southwood Drive in Kings Park. And you'd be able to say to taxi drivers at that time, can you take us to the big man's house? And the taxi driver still knew where Jockstein's house was. It was an incredible thing. So it's always been something that um, I've been interested in doing. Um, and uh, I'm glad that I've got the point. And it's, 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 um, it is an incredible football club. It's interesting because when I did the story of the three men, Manchester United, Liverpool and Celtic have all been successful in their leaders before Steen, Shankly and, and Busby got to those football clubs. But... There's absolutely no doubt that when they went to those football clubs, they changed them into something very, very different and special. Uh, and they've left their DNA in the football clubs, for me, uh, the way they are, their personalities and everything about them, really. Um, and Steen, in particular, I became even more fascinated with. I mean, Leo Moynihan says it. I, I knew a lot about Shankly because Shankly was omnipresent in British football and Busby was the babes and all that. But Steen was the one that really fascinated me and me uh, and Leo and, and a lot of other people because he was so instantly successful wherever he went. It was remarkable. It's one of the most remarkable stories in the history of football, what Celtic did. We all know that. But everywhere he went, Paul, was, was incredible. As soon as he went to Dunfermline, instant. As soon as he went to Hibs, instant. As soon as he went to Celtic, you know, the turnaround. I think if you were, if I was a billionaire and I bought Merthyr Tidville and I could pick the man, the young manager, can, I could I picked Jock Steen in 1965 to come to Merthyr Tidville. <laughs> and I'd say, Jock, I see you a football club, do what you want. And I'm pretty, I'd put my house on the fact that you'd be successful within six months. Because it's just, his brain was was so, I think, I think he was so, such a football philosopher. And Ferguson talks about this as well. I mean, he went to uh, Hungary and he watched the game again in 53. He was always obsessed with football philosophy and um, he was always thinking about the game. I think, um, of the three of them, he kind of almost was the. I mean, South Shankly was all passion, which is fantastic, and Liverpool is still a different, difficult place to go. Busby, you know, was was a genius at finding players. But Steen, I always think, you know, even though the others were very, very brilliant men when it comes to the game, I knew the game in a way that I don't know if a manager before or since has ever known the game in that period. He was he was remarkable. When we spoke on the podcast first time round, Johnny. I got an inkling that you knew too much about Jock Steen. It wasn't a passing interest. It was almost as if you had already started your research. Um, is this your love letter to Scottish football? Yeah, it is. I'm, um, I'm a very proud lover of Scottish football. I, I do a radio show on TalkSport and I get loads of tweets and mails about it. Um, I, I go up as much as I can. I, I, I see, I've seen football at all levels in Scotland, not just you know Celtic. I've seen like Queen's Park. I've been to see Partick Thistle. 
I think Scotland's got a very, very unique culture when it comes to football, and I and I I love it. I I love the fact that you know, it's you could still have a pint. You have got the games, uh, the people, the support. Um, I do you know it's really interesting because I got a few mates who we used to go do the German thing, sort of fifteen. 10, 15 years ago, and a lot of them are coming to Scottish football now. And I'm a bit I'm a bit nervous about the gentrification of Scottish football. Is it the next destination for people to start coming in after football? I mean, I know um, a lot of people go over to Dublin to see the uh, Bohemians and, and, and those kind of teams as well. So that, you know, it's not something that, you know, it's just unique to Germany. But I do think that Scotland is somewhere where a lot of fans of my age go and they go, oh, I love it up here. It's something still very, very real about the, the, the football in Scotland. And... Uh, Long may that continue. I'm, I'll be back up again soon. I'm hoping that uh, this COVID uh, eases off enough for me at least to come up and promote the film because they say to me, just today in a meeting, they were like, Johnny, would you be okay to go to, to Glasgow for a week? And I was like, are you fucking serious? <laughs> just get me up there. <laughs> but, you know, I'm hoping, the, um, I'm hoping that it'll be back out of um, the short circuit break that it's in at the moment. So, fingers crossed. It would be brilliant. I mean, when we're talking about football films uh, being shown in cinemas, that's now become the norm. But what sports films change the attitudes of critics and audiences to a point where they're now viewed as integral to the documentary genre? There's been quite a few, Paul. I mean, I think that um, the first one where people saw there's something different going on here was When We Were Kings, which is the Muhammad Ali documentary, which specifically concentrates on the period really for George Foreman in Zaire. It's a fantastic documentary, and they found a lot of old footage, and they kind of put it back together again. And I think that was the first template that's kind of ended up with stuff like The Last Dance that you've seen on recently on Netflix about the, the Chicago Bulls team. That was the first one that when I felt sports documentaries were finding their place in documentary filmmaking and being taken seriously by the newspapers and the critics and, and audiences as well. Um, and then Senna came out in Britain, which is a fantastic film. And like I said, James, who who's produced that film, is the producer on this film. Uh, you know, and that sort of did well, basically, in the, in the cin- on the cinema circuit and especially at DVD. And once you start being successful, people become very interested. They want, want you to make more because there's a, there's a market fit, as they say. Um, there was one for me which I absolutely loved, which is called uh, Fire in Babylon, which was all about the great West Indian cricket team of the uh, of the late 70s and early 80s. Not a great subject for Scotsman. I know you're not that fussed on cricket. I'm not a massive fan of cricket either, but I really love the West Indian team. I thought Viv Richards and Clive Lloyd and Michael Holden were great characters, you know. So I loved that film. And that was the first film I, I saw where I thought, well, it's used sporting imagery and music really well together. Um, and that's why I had a crack at uh, I Believe in Miracles, which did um, remarkably well for me uh, on, you know, not just in cinema, but on DVD and on TV, all that kind of thing. And uh, that was often another one I did. I, I did the one on Wales in the in the Euros uh, because that was, you know, sort of that was something very close to my heart because I'm a Welshman and I went out there. Uh, but this one is um, is deeply personal because of my father and, you know, uh, the in, the industry and the world that I came from. Um, and I feel a real attachment to the three men in Scotland. And I wanted to talk about Scotland in the context of football history, world football history as well, because it's really important. Scotland, you know, fell in love with the game in a way that probably was unmatched anywhere in the world. You could probably say Brazil as well in the 50s was very similar. But record crowds are always broken in Glasgow. Um, you know, the, they, they played football in a very specific way. People talk about it quite a lot. They played a very specific short passing game. You know, in England, the game had grown out of this village to village, sort of almost like a, a rugby feel. You know, we charged one another. In Scotland, it was very skillful. And for a hundred years, you know, the spine of the great English teams that you know dominated Europe were often Scotsmen. You know, so 
the tradition Scotland had of producing not just managers but players was central to the British game and the British identity. And uh, that's something I grew up with. You know, I, I grew up in the period when Wales and Scotland were fierce rivals in 78 and, and 85, you know, qualifying for World Cups. And my dad said something really interesting to me once. My dad was a very, very good footballer. He didn't, he was offered, uh, he could have gone to Sheffield Wednesday in Aston Villa. And in those days, he was, uh, he got an apprenticeship to be an electrician with the NCB. And it was actually more lucrative for him to stay at the NCB and, and, and do his uh, apprenticeship. So he ended up playing for Barry Town and people like that. But I always remember him saying to me, he played for the Welsh Army, uh, National Service. and uh, again, this is something you just remember as a kid, and he went, oh, you know, we, we beat Northern Ireland, they were decent, and, and we drew with England, and he said, we just couldn't get any of the Scots. They were too good for us, you know, and I always remember stuck in my head that, you know, this is the early 60s, and he was going, they had boys from Motherwell, you know, and boys from Partick Thistle in the Army because they were doing National Service, and he said, we just couldn't get near them. So this is something I think I've always kind of kept with me, really, all my life, but um, I'm really glad that I'm able to do a film like I said, I call it my love letter to Scottish football, that kind of younger audiences can see and, and can hear about, you know, because it's never a fluke why these people come from these places. It's never a fluke that Scotland produced that many footballers. Uh, Paddy Barkley said a, a brilliant uh, statement once. He said, you know, he, somebody like Alex, Matt Busby, Alex James lived in his street. You know, it's Lionel Messi, like, that's like Lionel Messi now living in your street. It's going to have an influence on you, you know? And he said that um, basically being in Scotland is like being in the coffee houses of Vienna in the year of revolution in 1848. That's what it was like around Glasgow in the early part of the 20th century and the surrounding areas. You were just immersed in football and its culture and the way it's played. And of course, what happens is people like Matt Busby, Jockstein, you know, Ferguson, they grow, grow out of that. And that's what happens, you know, and uh, that's what the film's about. When I look at the three figures, Johnny, um, how pivotal do you think their success was and their life lessons that they were taught at the coalface. They, they were all miners from mining villages. I'd say it was absolutely central. It's really interesting because obviously, you know, you come from a mining background yourself. The thing about miners was this, they were they were reorganised, they were unionised, um, they had to argue a point, you know, they had to get on, they had to show teamwork, camaraderie. I mean, there's all the central tenets of being a great football manager. You know, if you want to, if you want to argue a point as a union man, you know, and you have to argue it well against coal owners, you know, you've got to be able to get across simply. You've got to get the men to back you. These are all things that were very much part of the miners and their union. All things like you're saying you need when you go into any kind of management, and especially football management. Um, you know, so just looking after one another's, you know, backs, making sure down there in the dark, as they say, you know, you've got to be, you've got to be friends. There's no time for religious differences or or you know political differences otherwise you know you could die so those things shape those men those communities shape those men um and it's almost difficult for us to understand how, how close they were you know um they had to be to survive uh, there was no welfare state you know certainly before the second world war so you know penury and poverty were very real things that could happen at any second so families had to had to band together and look after each other neighbors had to band together and laugh one another. And it's really interesting that the three men instantly went to the crowds of those, you know, major industrial cities, you know, the, the Manchesters and Liverpools and the Glasgow's, and said, you know, if you, you know, we need to be all in this together. The great story of Steen, you know, opening the window of the dressing room and saying, listen to the sound of the people come in. You know, those are the people you need to entertain today. Busby looking across the great mills of Salford and saying, it's all about them this weekend. You know, and Shanley talking about being one of the cop. He said, I'm one of them and they're one of me. These are things that, you know, miners have. My father used to say some, I talk about my father quite a lot because he's obviously very important to me in the film. He used to say this great thing to me. 
he used to say the miners used to say um you're not better than anybody else but you're just as good as them which i think is a wonderful wonderful statement and almost philosophy to have in life because it gives you that sort of belief that you know you can you can be yourself and stand up for yourself it doesn't mean you never look down on anybody it's almost kind of a very socialist thing as as, as shankley said in socialist football is what you encourage if you all work together you can all win a, win a medal. And even Steen, you know. This week on The Marketer's Report, Patrizio Spagnoletto, Global Chief Marketing Officer, Direct to Consumer for Warner Brothers Discovery, weighs in on building trust. Trust is a really hard thing to build and a really easy thing to destroy. And we have to be very respectful about that. Our partnership with iHeart has really helped us build that trust and that relationship with the on-air talent. As the number one audio company, iHeart Media gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the data you need to grow. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Those, those great golden moments of when you got the camera on him and he famously says, you know, if somebody's having a bad game, help him out. You know, he says that really famous thing in the, in the documentary that, that followed him that year, that sensational year, um, probably the greatest year of any domestic football team in the history of the game. Won every trophy that was available for, to them. Remarkable. And not just won every trophy, won every trophy and the most difficult trophy there is to win and still is domestic trophy on the planet. But it's just the line he says, if somebody's having a bad game, help him out. And it's just one beautiful, succinct line that comes almost straight down from the pits. If somebody's having a bad day, you know, you've got to look after them. You've got to help each other because it's really important. And down there, you might not survive, you know. So they took those those things from the pits, their lives, their communities, and they took them out and took them on the pitch. I mean, Busby, for argument's sake, I mean, what a remarkable man. His father had, was killed in the First World War. He was already the senior Busby left living by the time of seven, eight years of age. And his half-brother, his mother married again, talks about him constantly being the man of the house from like nine so, you know, from nine years of age, Matt Busby was very aware that he had to behave a certain way to make sure his family were OK. And he took all those qualities from Scotland to Manchester, where he played, and into managing Manchester United. Remarkable men. One thing that I've loved about your films to date, Johnny, is the importance you place on the soundtrack. Uh, the music is always perfect and it's fitting to the subject. How do you tackle a film like this when it comes to the music accompaniment? Well, I was very lucky. I'm, I'm a huge fan of uh, Richard Hawley, uh, the Sheffield uh, singer who's uh, very successful at the moment. And uh, he comes from a very industrial background. His father, his family worked in the steelworks in Sheffield. And I had a chat to him while I was doing this film. And he said to me, well, look, you know, I'd love to be involved in some way. So um, Richard and me sat down and we spoke about, you know, what kind of music we'd use. Um, and from the very start, you'll see I kind of I really like uh, Richard's stuff, which is almost like uh, psychedelic um, heavy metal. And it sounds like like industry to me. It sounds like, you know, almost slightly the darkness and and it's it's big, you know, and I wanted to use that kind of stuff in the film. And it, it fitted so well, especially the early stuff of um, of men and, and, and the dockyards of Glasgow and Liverpool. Um, and that's what we did, really. We kind of use this almost big guitar sound and it kind of pushes you through when it's got a very rhythm, rhythmic thing, you know, which is the sound to me of picks hitting a coal face or, you know, a giant press inside a steelworks. And that's what we did, really. We tried to use stuff like that. and It really worked, you know, um, because I was very aware that certainly in cases I'd be using something 70 year old football you know, uh, t t to a young audience. So I needed to cut it in a very specific way and I needed to pl play music, which keeps them engaged. Because if you're 18 years of age, you see men in big shorts running around in black and white, you know, you're thinking, well, this is not, this is a, it's, a, it's a million miles from where football is now. But then the irony is if you start cutting it and you start putting 
great music to it. Suddenly, you know, uh, Duncan Edwards, for argument's sake, looks like what he is, you know, a colossus, you know, and a fantastic footballer, you know, and that's what we try to do. We, I try to make it so a young person can watch this film and they stay with it, you know, they keep the pace uh, and you keep and you keep the stuff, the shots really interesting and you just keep telling this story because the, the difficulty I had making this film was the, they lived such remarkable lives as players, as well as managers, that I had to, I didn't have time to, I had to be really uh, brutal sometimes with some of the stuff I was going to put in there because I only had a certain amount of time. You know, if you're telling the story of three of the most remarkable managers that have existed in 20th century football and you've only got an hour and 50 minutes, then you've got to, you've got to move. And I think yeah. that helps the film because, like I said, somebody young watching the film will understand, you know, the, the, the story, but they won't get bored. They'll, uh, they'll, the, the pace will, will keep them with the film. You're speaking about three men who shaped not only the British game, but the world game. And back on the 29th of April 1978, Sir Alex Ferguson managed his final game in charge of St Mirren and they beat Celtic 3-1 at Love Street. Now that was, ironically enough, Jockstein's last match in charge of Celtic. It was a passing of the baton, if you like. Do you feel that that great bloodline of Scottish managers has dried up and and it's gone. It's a bygone era. Yeah, it's um it's interesting because Ferguson is seen as kind of, you know, the last of the truly, truly great Scottish managers. It's interesting with Ferguson and his relationship with um with Steen in particular because he he mentions Busby obviously because he went to Manchester United and Busby was still not there, but in in the sense he had been some ten years previously, but he was still at an office and he and he'd call in and he said he talked to him and he actually says he laments almost that he wishes he'd talked to him a bit more. Um, but his relationship with Steen was the one for Ferguson. There was a, a 4-4-2 uh, competition in the 20th century, 1999, and great managers were asked to pick their greatest manager, and Ferguson picked Jock Steen. He said he's the greatest manager of all time. And obviously he said it's because of the amount of stuff that he won, and, and it's the trophies that he won, and we won the European Cup with the Glasgow District 11, as he says. Um, and it's really interesting that uh, Shankly says something very similar. He says, he says in the film, uh, Glasgow Celtic are the most successful football club in the world. Uh, and this is the mid-70s. And the guy goes, well, why would you say that? And he goes, well, look what they've just won. They've won everything. And they've won the European Cups. They've got the European Cup finals. They've beaten Leeds, you know. And it's really interesting because a young British audience, especially in England, would hear that now and go, really? And you go, yeah, yeah. They, every time Celtic played anybody who were the English champions at that time, they won, you know. So there's those really interesting moments there where they talk about stuff like that. The Scottish manager thing is is yeah, it's interesting because it was such a a cliche in football that you'd got a good Scottish manager in, and that would sort of it's almost you know sort of taken as red, and that's because of that's because of them. I'm trying to think. There's the lad at Preston. No, he's got a good reputation. Um, mm. There's Alex Neil, um, but there's not many. There's not many. Um, and certainly not, not people of the stature in the game like like your Fergusons and and that the the the, the Ferguson Steen relationship because obviously they managed Scotland together as well. Uh, and Ferguson talks about long nights of 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 talking about football and 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 Steen would make a cup of tea and he'd keep making tea because he never drank jock and he'd keep having tea and tea all night and he said he just would talk about football over and over and over and over again and you can see it had a real effect on Ferguson and I think. It's fair to say of the three of them, and I think Ferguson would agree with this, of the, of the three of them, Steen is the biggest influence on, on, on Alex Ferguson. No doubt about that. I mean, even to the, what he did in the uh, European Cup in his Cup final, where Steen gave him the advice to, uh, I think he gave um, Alfred the step of some kind of present, didn't he, as if to say, he said, make him feel as if you know, you're just happy 
did he play in them? Which is what Jock Brilliant. did in against Inter Milan, <laughs> and Ferguson did it, and he said it worked, you know. And uh, so I think there's a it's a it's a very poignant thing the um passing of the baton and and you know the night that um that, that big Jock passed away, I was there, I was at that game, um and my overriding memory as well after the match was the silence in the crowd and the silence leaking into the crowd because of Scotland had their yellow flags and they were waving them and there was thousands of the Tartan Army there, incredible support. But as word was spreading, because it was transistor radios in those days, my father and my grandfather were there, my father said, is it true about Steen? And somebody had said something and the Scots fans are coming out and I can remember them getting quiet but obviously word was spreading. Um, and that was a night that really stayed with me because I was going home in the car and in my grandfather's car and that just, you know, it was very stilted conversation and uh, it was almost like I imagine you know when a great king passes or a great warrior in a tribe that's they were miners you know and he was one of them it was that's how it felt to me you know it was a uh, had a real impact on me. Now there's a famous quote Johnny uh, from Jock Steen and it's you play a football match without fans you've got nothing um, how much is that resonating in this day and age going through what we are going through at the moment? I know it's remarkable, isn't it? I mean, the film, a few people have said about that in the trailer. It's the film's really resonates even more than ever, you know. Um, I, I'm I'm lucky that I work in football. I work not in Forest. I uh, look after the communication and media stuff. And I go to some games and I find it very, very difficult. And in all credit to the, the CEO and the chairman, they both said to me, you don't have to come out. I, I find it almost impossible to watch football matches without fans there. That's how important they are to me personally. Um, it's 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 a it's a strange strange experience, um, and Jock got it absolutely right. And it's, it's amazing how so many clubs and so many countries have picked up on that saying. You see it on banners in in Germany and all over the world, Spain, and um, he was absolutely right. You know, and he loved Archie McPherson gives me a great line because Archie knew him really well, and Archie said to me he loved the Celtic supporters. He loved them. You know, he said. He said it was very poignant. He said not everybody loved Jock inside Celtic because of his religion, which is sounds astonishing to us now in, in the modern age, mm-hmm. considering what he'd won. But he said he loved the Celtic supporters in a way that you know it's um, you can't fake. He just genuinely loved them, you know. And uh, I was uh, I thought it was quite a beautiful thing really to say. And and I love the fact that Celtic supporters are so proud of him as well. Really, you know that he was he was a man that kind of you know went to a different tribe. You know, he lost friends. From where he was from, Burnbank, but once he was once he was leading that other tribe, there was no greater no greater king for them really. Do you know what I mean? He kind of he was uh, an extraordinary. And Ferguson said something as well. He said he never ever said a bad word about Celtic. Wouldn't said you know impossibly said. And Ferguson goes, I was more you know jock you know what they did, and he was like wouldn't have it. No 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 great club, and you know that, I just think there's something quite beautiful about that. You know the what jock and Celtic fans mean to each other, even now in, in, in the year 2020. Now, when I'm looking at the, the three figures, the three kings that you've mentioned, I find it incredible that you've managed to compress all that into one film. Was it ever a consideration for this to be a trilogy? Well, do you know what's a funny thing? I, um, I, I was, when I was doing it, starting it, I, I thought myself, oh, I, I bit off more like a chewy by sticking all this into a film. But, and, uh, Amazon, I think, came in and said, would you want to do a series? And I was that close because I thought myself, I could do five or six parts here. But at that point, we were like, well, look, you know, we want to make it for, a, I, want to, I want to introduce a young audience across 
the world to this, you know. Um, so I think for Celtic fans, you would have you would have loved like five hours of it, and, and <laughs> loved it. But I wanted to make something which uh, other fans of other clubs can watch and go, "Wow, that was an amazing story." So that's where I kind of uh, I thought about. Do you know, it's a funny thing as well. The producer said to me the other day, he went to me, "Do you know if this takes off, wouldn't it be a great uh, drama series?" He said, "No, Keir Hines as, as Steen and and that." Mullen uh, as as Shankly and I was like yeah 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 so you don't know I mean listen it is it it is an amazing story uh, so you just don't know where these things are going to end up you know this is this is the latest and I'm really pleased to have to have to have done it I met with Jock's grandson who was lovely uh, in the uh, in Glasgow when I was up last he was on his bike he turned up in a cafe and it's a bit like you almost and it and it was it was beautiful actually because he's got Jock's eyes. And when you sit and talking to him, you and you you get to know this person you're making a film about. So when he's such a giant, you know, of the game. <laughs> so often you sit in there with the grandson, you think, God, you actually look like Jock every now and then. Do you know what I mean? He's just a lad having a chat, going. He's still a massive Celtic fan, goes to games and all the rest of it. So it's uh, it's an interesting thing, you know. And you know, we I spoke to Shankly's granddaughter, and they just because of the men and the time they lived in. And like now, you know, they didn't have masses of wealth that they left the families. Their families lived good lives, but nothing that you'd expect, you know, that, that the lives of managers and footballers have now. Um, you know, they, they're just they're just people who obviously ridiculously proud of what their uh, their grandfathers are and what they've done. Um, so yes, yeah, you realise that uh, you know they still have roots in these places. Jock's really interesting because what is it? Paddy Barkley said, think he's gripped by the soil of North Lanarkshire. He can't leave him. He tries Leeds for a bit. It's no good for him, Jock. Jock's a Scotsman and he's not going anywhere, you know. It took Busby a long time, you know, cried when he first got the Manchester, didn't like it. Uh, Shankly, Shankly's more of a buzzsaw, really. He's off off around the place as soon as he can from Asia. But Steen's the one. Steen's like, nah, it's no good for me anywhere other than around here and I'm, I'm no good. <laughs> and I, get, I understand that. Oh, definitely. You're, you're speaking about some of the people that you've spoken to uh, whilst researching the film. Did you get an opportunity to chat to any of the Lisbon Lions for the film itself? No, I didn't. I didn't want to speak to any of the players, not for any particular reason. What I thought was I was just going to speak to um, writers, historians, one expert on each. Um, and then I thought myself, I'm going to do what they do, did for Senna and things like that. I'm going to build it on all the stuff that I could find in the in the archive at the time, because I think... There was a fantastic documentary about the Lisbon Lions on the anniversary um, in uh, 2017, I think it was, um, which was done brilliantly. So I was a bit like, I don't think there's anything more I can do to that. I'm always very aware that sometimes people do things superbly. So you don't want to go in and say, you know, because there's nothing different really for them me to have done on them. What I wanted to do is I wanted to get people talking about what that was and what an achievement that was from the outside so people like Paddy Barkley and Archie McPherson I spoke to which terrific actually um obviously Archie's voice is on the commentary you know trying to end the ice age of of European football that great line as they come around half time which is for a filmmaker then Archie in 1967 has set me up dramatically to sort of like to go into the second half and then you know I got um I got cream I feel free kicks in when uh Tommy Gamble scores bum 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 and he's got a crowd coming in and they win it's just it's just brilliant and so you to can turn like an amazing moment into, into great filmic filmic art if you can. Do you know what I mean? Because you can get the music and you can cut the crowds and all that. And you know, there's, there's some really really famous shots I know. But when you're making a film about Jock Steen specifically, and you've got the fella with the Jock Steen, and he's coloured in the Jock Steen famously, and he points to it. 
I mean, somebody's got to recreate that T-shirt. You'd sell 100,000, surely, with the same style of colouring. Do you know what I mean? you just go, well, there's a T-shirt there. Do you know what I'm saying? Definitely. So, um, yeah, I, I just, you know, I just, uh, I wanted to do it in a, in a new way if I possibly could. You know, I wanted to do, you know, my interpretation of it, you know, with the music and, and the people talking and, you know, let the images then, you know, uh, tell the story themselves, really. Tell us, Johnny, this is going to be a limited cinema release under the circumstances, but there is an opportunity for fans to register online. Tell us where we can do that. Well, the fans have already been brilliant, and I imagine a lot of them are Celtic fans, because <laughs> there's, um, there's an email you can get, which is on the website, www.3kings.co.uk. I'm sure you'll put it up for me, Paul, as well. And you can register for an email. My message is going to be, because of COVID, unfortunately, and Cineworld chain shut in, I have got Showcase and a few others, big chains, who have been brilliant. And they, they said, it's still open at the moment. And I'm hoping in Scotland, because you've got this circuit break that's happening that when the film's ready for release uh, the first week of november it'll it'll be okay and in cinemas but if you if you sign up to that website um you can get an email notification of when the dates are released they're releasing the dates specifically and which cinemas are showing it next week and i think it's obviously going to be on in quite a few places in glasgow if there's enough of them a demand and i'm hoping so then it might run for a week or two there um so and that's what i'm hoping and they can they can keep it going then and uh it's just a great chance uh for me to show the celtic fans and Scottish football you know what 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 it means to me and hopefully they can really enjoy it uh, what's been a difficult time for everybody really and they can uh, revel in their marvelous and amazing history now, Johnny, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you again on A Celtic State of Mind. We will keep pushing this movie as much as we can. And in the meantime, all that's left for me to say is thank you, Johnny Owen, for joining me on A Celtic State of Mind. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you to everybody for your support already. It's been fantastic. Marketers Report. This week, Patrizia Spagnoletto, Global Chief Marketing Officer, Direct to Consumer for Warner Brothers Discovery, weighs in on the difficult task of building and retaining consumer trust. Trust is a really hard thing to build and a really easy thing to destroy, and we have to be very respectful about that. Our partnership with iHeart has really helped us build that trust and that relationship with the on-air talent. The best thing for us to do is to build a relationship with our consumers. And if those consumers have a relationship with the DJs that are on air, then we want to build on that. House of the Dragon, which was one of our most successful, if not the most successful campaign we've ever done for a show, audio was a core part of that. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. Not just a media company, iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. I switched to Boost Mobile and got a free Samsung Galaxy A23 5G phone. Want to know the best part? Uh, it was free? Nope. The fact that it's on America's largest 5G networks? Nope. It's the ding. 
Oh yeah, love the ding, right? It's all about the ding. It's the dingarooski, the dingarona, the ring-a-ding-ding. Unleash your power to save with Boost. Get a free Samsung Galaxy A23 5G phone when you switch. Boost Mobile, unleash your power. And the ding. Limited time offer, new customers only. Available on select networks. 5G not available everywhere. One device per line. Tax excluded. Additional restrictions apply. See your local Boost Mobile store for details. Sports Social Podcast Network. 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 Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.